Okay, welcome in everybody to this episode of Mythic Existence. Today we're going to be talking about Eastern mysticism, and I'm going to be drawing a lot off of another Joseph Campbell book, Myths of Light. Got it right here for those of you watching the video. Myths of Light, Eastern Metaphors on the Eternal, of the Eternal. I promise not every episode is going to be based on Joseph Campbell books, but you know, just at the start. While I'm figuring out what this podcast is and where I'm going to be drawing my information from, some of the books have been Joseph Campbell so far. and uh, Really, this is a way for us to dive in to Eastern mysticism just as a general topic. And the reason that I've chosen this book to focus on is it has played a, a major role in my life coming into an understanding of Eastern mysticism. I read the book when I was in college. I think it was during my sophomore year of college. And just personally, I grew up in, you know, a Catholic uh, family. Not like super strict Catholic, but, you know, I was like an altar boy when I was a kid. But I became very disenchanted with Western religion and Christianity in particular at a pretty young age. By the time I was about nine years old, I was uh, pretty much done with it. And the reason I say that and the reason that that was, you know, a factor in my life is because I thought that it was, it didn't empower the human enough. The whole focus was just on, you know, you just accept Jesus and then you're a Christian and God looks on you favorably and if you're not, then this external God is going to be, you know, judging you throughout your life and everything like that. And so I think it was that externality that really didn't jive with me because even from a young age, I kind of had the inkling that I think that everything is divine and that humans are divine and that there's a connection between uh, the eternal and uh, you know, the eternal God and us as temporal beings. And once I started to familiarize myself with Eastern thought, I found a, a real home in it because, you know, one of the main precepts of Eastern mysticism is that everything is divine. And that's exactly how I thought. So um, this book in particular, along with uh, Herman Hesse's Siddhartha, were two books that really, really were kind of revolutions for me as far as, you know, how I see the world. And I think that this is just a really good introduction to uh, Eastern thought and the best that I've read. So I'm just going to hit on some of the, the main points that are brought up in the book. And I mean, the reason I think that Eastern mysticism is really important for us is that it offers a new prism of our own our understanding ourselves that Western orthodoxy really doesn't. Um, maybe if you really plunge below and get into the more esoteric traditions, uh, 
like Gnosticism and Kabbalah, then things start to change. But as we sort of receive it, which is ironically what the word Kabbalah is, but what when we receive the information from, um, you know, the church itself, like their main positions, it's not empowering. It doesn't allow us to, you know, be divine beings on earth, basically. Uh, but Eastern mysticism, on the other hand, to me, it's empowering, empowering and invigorating. So I think it's something that everybody needs to familiarize themselves with. Okay, so we'll begin with this. One of the main statements in Eastern thought is tat tvam asi, which means that art thou. And basically what that says is that everything is you. Like that thing that you're seeing over there is actually yourself. And so right there, there's this non-duality and an an extinguishing of the I. So basically what that's saying is that everything is connected. Everything ultimately is, is one thing. And this is what we're uncovering with quantum, quantum physics nowadays. There's another great book that I could have also used as a source for this episode. I'll probably talk about it another time. The Tao of Physics, where the author Fritjof Kopra goes through and he links up how Eastern thought is basically the same thing as quantum physics. They're just using different language to describe it. And I mean, that's what these quantum physicists are realizing is that they're trying to observe this external object or this atom. And they're coming to realize that there's no difference between the observer and the observed. They're locked within each other so this that automatically it's like wait i think that that atom outside of myself is actually not me but it actually is me so that's the the main thought which is completely different than how it is in western religious thought when you're not supposed to be linked to god you're your own personal individual and that's very pervasive of course in in uh, the American philosophy where we have this extreme focus on the individual, which I could go on a whole diatribe w- w- about how I think that that's really giving us a lot of problems in today's world, especially with COVID um, and, you know, the the racial strife that's occurring in this country. I think one of the main reasons is because of the stress on the individual instead of communality. So that's the main takeaway is everything is one, everything is connected, uh, which is just an extremely profound uh, notion to, to have in the first place. And in Oriental philosophy, the main mystery is beyond all definition. And that's something that I talked about on the, the previous episodes, the Hero with a Thousand Faces episodes, but... This ultimate truth is ineffable. It's unapproachable. It's utterly inconceivable. All categories of thought fall short of being able to actually obtain this ultimate truth. So some of the things that 
are focused on in Western religion, especially Christianity, is like, is God merciful? Is God loving? Is it okay to be gay? Can I have sex before marriage? All of those thoughts are kindergarten, like preschool thoughts in what in Eastern uh, mystical thought, because the ultimate truth is ineffable. And so like to focus on such, you know, unimportant things ultimately is, is kind of silly in Eastern thought. And I really like that. And another difference is that in the West, only God can know God. But in the East, this is turned on its head and it's viewed completely differently. So in the East, the, the transcendent knowledge of being God is the basis, the basis of your own being. And it gets kind of complicated because uh, Campbell gives us this kind of eloquent occasion, uh, equation where he says, you are the mystery, but the you that you think you are is the you you can't even conceive of. But the you that you can't even conceive of is the real you. So you're incapable incapable of even comprehending your own existence, but that existence that is real is the, the real reality that is inconceivable. And so you start getting into these kind of Zen, cone-like paradoxes when you start getting into Eastern thought. And that's also what you find in quantum physics, which is, again, this is like, this is a mystical way of describing the extremely complicated scientific nature of reality, is how I like to think of Eastern thought. And that's not what you find with, I argue, that's not what you find in Western thought, for the most part, Western religion, is it doesn't coincide with how the universe actually works. Most of it is just speculative and um, unempowering, and I just, I really don't like it. Western religions also rely on institutions, but nowadays, the claims that they're making, they're being thrown into question, and they're really being shown for what they're worth which is that they don't really hold up. Uh, Christianity, to me, is basically a house of cards. You know, that thing is just a way to topple over. But really, Eastern thought allows us to return to what came before, in, in Western civilization at least, which is the Greeks, the Celts, the Romans, the sacred grove, the sacredness, the sacredness within and without is how Campbell describes it. And, I mean, that same way of thought is also found in, you know, Mesoamerican, Native American, um, indigenous philosophies from the world over. Um, And in the East, also, there's no fall, which, to me, that's probably the most damaging philosophical contribution that Christianity has given us. Because what that does is that makes us focus on our sinning nature, which, surprise, surprise, I think that that's irrelevant and erroneous, and so it gets us to think of ourselves as inherently bad, instead of focusing on the God within. And one of the quotes that Campbell provides from the Upanishads, which, um, it's above my, 
over here somewhere on this shelf. Uh, one of my favorite religious texts. So much better than the Bible. I absolutely love the Upanishads. It says, Man is the truth above all truths. There is nothing above that. And this sort of thought is what really excited these first Western philosophers that were coming across Eastern's thought, such as Arthur Schopenhauer. And this sort of thing is what led to the revitalization seen in American transcendentalists as well. I also want to talk about Kundalini Yoga and the chakras. He's got a really great um, portion of the book dedicated to that. Basically, yoga, uh, it means to yoke. So you're trying to yoke your consciousness to the source. And this form of yoga called Raja Yoga, it's visualized as a serpent that's uh, coiled at the base of your spine um, and is supposed to go up your spine above your head basically and it's a, a path to enlightenment essentially and so there's there's uh seven chakras the first chakra is called the muladhara chakra the root chakra and at this point you're the energy they're all energy centers basically and at this point the energy is coiled up like a dragon this is holding on to these wor- worldly pleasures and worldly uh goods in existence basically it's ebenezer scrooge just holding on to what money he actually has so that's the first chakra second chakra is called svadhisthana it's the sacral chakra this is the real pleasure center so i think i might have misspoken said the first one is worldly pleasures this one is the sexual chakra basically so the main aim of this chakra is uh you know Kama is basically what it's called. Pleasure, sexual delight. The third one is called Manapura. And um, it's located in your navel. So uh, it's called the navel chakra also. At this point, all of the energy is focused on consuming. This is a, There's a real Nietzschean level to this where it's all about the will to power. Uh, Campbell says that the first three levels are uh, the extrovert levels, and the the uh, second four are the extrovert level or the introvert levels. So, the fourth chakra is the heart chakra, and this is where you're when when you're operating at the level of the fourth chakra is when you're coming into a, a personal existence, a personal ex- relationship with the divine. Uh, Campbell supplies Wordsworth's quote, a sense of sublime of something far more deeply interfused, which is one of my favorite lines in the history of, you know, Western literature, Western poetry. That kind of describes what you're experiencing at the level of the fourth chakra. It's also known as anahata, which means not hit. And Campbell likens that to the Zen cone what is the sound of not made by two objects striking together? And the answer he supplies is that it's uh, Om, the sound of Brahman. It's uh, that's that's the sound that's not made by two objects striking together. That's a Zen cone. And so at this point, you're approaching the experience of Atman, 
And so in Eastern philosophy, Brahma and Brahman is the ultimate uh, creator force that magically creates this world. And then Atman is, is basically the force that comes down and uh, infuses the, the jiva, the individual, with this divine being. So you're approaching your own level of the, the divine at this level. The fifth chakra is called Visuddha, also known as the throat chakra. And at this point, you're trying to get rid of the imposition of the world of, you know, earth, basically, and the world of the pure ohm. This is kind of the level that monks basically live at. The sixth chakra is the third eye or the Ajna chakra. And this is where your inner sight perceives the ultimate vision of the Lord. Uh, this is where the jiva, the individual incarnation of Brahman, beholds the, the Lord Isvara. So uh, this is the, the inner sight, the inner divine nature that is in your third eye chakra, basically. And then the seventh chakra is called uh, Sasrara, also known as the crown chakra. At this point, you've transcended duality. Uh, you're living beyond all pairs of opposites, and you've basically reached ultimate enlightenment so Schopenhauer in so that's the chakras this next part is kind of linked to it but Schopenhauer in his book The World is Will and Representation he asks the question how is it that the one becomes the many and how nothing becomes something which that I mean to me that kind of brings up thoughts about the Big Bang essentially and he calls that the paradox of the world not and that's kind of the ultimate one of the, one of the aspects of the ultimate mystery and again it, it can't be understood physicists are trying to approach it but ultimately they're finding that their language is falling short of completely describing it campbell also talks about a really great um, Japanese book called The Tale of Genji and that's also somewhere on my shelf um, probably on this row somewhere I, I read this book uh, in my Japanese history class as a college student um, I'm pretty sure that in the first episode I went over you know my educational background and everything but um you know, I have a, a history degree, and I loved learning about, you know, taking Eastern religious, or just Eastern history classes, really, Japanese, Chinese, um, you know, some Korean thrown, thrown in there as well, uh, and this is one of the books that we read in my Japanese history class was The Tale of Genji, Genji. and one of the main, like, Zen thoughts from that period was called mono no aware, which means to know the pathos of things. And basically what that is, is it's a Buddhist focus on the oneness of existence. So mono no aware is like a, one of those kind of thoughts that I keep with me is to just focus on the oneness of existence while you're going around. And he also supplies this rippling pond metaphor that I really like where he says 
the world existence is like a rippling pond where originally the the pond was unfractured you know it was one just still thing and then a rock got thrown into it and it started rippling and all those ripples emanated from that one source and they they looked like they were fractured and their own separate thing but real really they came from that one first event which is kind of a, a great metaphor for uh the, the goal of Eastern thought, which is to go back to that original unity. So I really love that. He also discusses a paradox. Uh, he says, All beings are manifestations of Brahma and Atman, and all jivas are manifestations of the Atman. And when you realize this, that's nirvana. So what are you supposed to do once you have that uh, understanding? And this kind of ties back into like the the hero's journey in the return phase. Like, what do you do once you've got the ultimate boon? Once you've had the ultimate enlightenment? And there's different answers for that. Uh, monks, they say the more you're trying to not want, the more you're wanting to not want. So you're still not quite there. And ultimately, kind of the... I, I think the answer, basically, that Campbell gives is to just... To achieve balance, you just have to go with the flow. Which is, uh, you know, that's, it's hard to do, but going with the flow is just the kind of the answer that's given. Um, and nirvana itself, it means blown out. So once you've reached nirvana is when you've reached the Buddha mind. And at this point, one's individual ego is extinguished like a flame. So that's what the nirvana is, like a flame representing the ego and your own existence not tied into the whole oneness of the world is blown out and then that's gone forever basically and he also gives a quote from dt suzuki that i absolutely love absolutely love um again i've got work by dt suzuki he's one of the he's the eminent uh zen buddhist scholar somewhere probably on the top shelf of my bookshelf suzuki says this world with all its faults, with all its crime, all its horror, all its banality, all its stu- stupidity, that's the golden lotus world. So that's this huge takeaway to, to get from Eastern mysticism because so much of Western thought is focused on the afterlife, this imaginary afterlife that nobody's been to where y- you can go to heaven and like who knows what happens there, you know, who knows if that even exists, like... Why would you live your life for the afterlife? I cannot comprehend that. It doesn't make any sense to me. Because guess what? We're in the golden lotus world right now. We're experiencing it. We're here right now. This is it. This is the life. You have to go live it. And I think that that's one of the most amazing, like profound things that Eastern mysticism supplies us is that it's an empowerment of us right now. And that kind of makes me think of Nietzsche's eternal recurrence where he basically says the point of living your life is that if you were given the option to live it over and over and over again endlessly you would take that chance every time with all of the dirt with all of the awful things that happened to you you still would choose that life to come back to eternally uh 
Campbell also talks about the distinction between the East and the West hero. So for people like Dante and Joyce, their hero is the hero of the here and now. It's a temporal being. In the East, that's not really how it works because you're not this body. You're not this ego. Your body is basically just something to be thrown on and thrown away again. Um, And he gives the example of a story called The Humbling of Indra. Where Indra is the king of the gods. He's followed Dharma. He's pursued material wealth. He's indulged in pleasure. And then Vishnu and Shiva come to visit him. And all the materials just turn to ash. Because he's ready to chuck it away and proceed to the next game. And that's very different from Jung's individuation. Because you're canceling everything. You're canceling the ego. You're canceling the desire for success. You're canceling the pursuit of pleasure. And personally, I like the the Eastern version of it more. Um, But they're very different things. So ultimately, the aim of Oriental religions is to bring our experience to what's called sunyata. And again, this is beyond all description, this ultimate enlightenment. But... And they say that any image that pretends to be this is ultimately an idol. Um, And another huge difference between the East and the West is that in the East or in the West, we don't experience of identifying, we don't aim for the experience of identifying with the ultimate divine. In fact, that's the prime heresy in uh, Christianity. And to me, that's the downfall of Western religion. Uh, in the West, the relationship isn't uh, the relationship between God and man isn't God to God, which is what it should be. In the East, every person is true uh, human being and true God at the same time. And so the goal is to realize the divinity within yourself. And, you know, I get sad when I hear religious people talk about how they, how they have nothing to do with God and how they're not divine. Like, I think that's, if that's not the goal of religion, then just don't even have religion in the first place because that is the goal. That needs to be the goal. And that kind of brings to mind for me a, a quote from the Corpus Hermeticum, which um, I'm not going to read in, in total here, but it's basically like, um, you know, if you shut yourself and abase yourself and say that you have nothing to do with God, then like, like, what are you, what are you thinking? What do you have to do with God? If you, if you're just going to shut yourself up and say that you're not divine. So ultimately, and, uh, my cat is jumping on my lap right now. Every once in a while, she'll make, uh, an appearance on the episode. I forgot to close her in, but, um, you want to talk about some Eastern mysticism, little Missy? Okay, so ultimately, Eastern thought is to embrace the here and the now. When you realize that eternity is here and now, and you can ex- uh, experience that eternity always, then you're thinking in the correct terms. And that Corpus Hermeticum quote is a rare strain in Western thought, and it's from kind of, it's from that sacred grove period that we were talking about. It's actually from the very beginning of when Christianity was beginning to uh, proliferate in the West. Uh, It shows that that experience of the eternal is something that still is in the underpinnings of 
Western thought. And if you go look at, you know, um, paganism, that's definitely something that was a prime uh, aspect of their thought. Okay, so I want to finish out this this episode talking about Buddhism because uh, Buddhism for me is ultimately the, the form of Eastern mysticism that I love the most. And uh, he gives the story of uh, Siddhartha Gautama Sakyamuni, who is the, the Buddha. And basically, so Kitty is biting me right now. I'm going to put her down. Put, put her off of me. It's probably a better thing to have said. So, Siddhartha Gautama Sakyamuni, he was royal. And his father locked him in the palace because he didn't want him to see all the terrible things that exist in the world. But one day, the Buddha, he, and he's not yet the Buddha, he's still just, he's still Siddhartha Gautama Sakyamuni. Uh, he goes out and his dad tries uh, to have everything cleared away so that he won't see anything bad. But ultimately, he sees um, a sick man that is placed by the deities in front of him. And he sees an old man and he sees a funeral. So he he's a, becomes aware of that sickness is a thing, that aging is a thing, and that death is, is a thing. And at that point, he decides that he wants to be a holy man. And so he cuts off his lordly top knot which is um, a, a piece of hair that would identify him as being of royal blood. And this signifies the death of his vocation. He's, he's cutting himself off from his dharma, uh, which would be his, his role in society, essentially. Um, and Buddhists are very cynical about those kind of Hindu austerities of you know class systems and stuff like that. And the Buddha, he goes to a stream and he says, I'm going to you know, put this bowl into the stream and if it goes uphill, I will achieve illumination. If it goes upstream. Sure enough, it does. And this is when he has his first uh, illumination experience, basically. And Buddhism, really, what it means is one who is awake. And one thing that I love about Buddhism is that ultimately it's a psychological religion. It's not a uh, dogmatic religion like Christianity. And the goal of a Buddhist is to go upstream to that the transcendent world of undifferentiated nirvana. And the Buddha's ultimate enlightenment experience happens when he was meditating underneath the Bodhi tree. And as he was approaching enlightenment, the Lord of Desire and the Lord of Dharma came and they confronted him and he just let them pass and he achieved his his enlightenment and illumination beneath the Bodhi tree. But the first doctrine of Buddhism is that this illumination can't be taught. So the way to having this enlightenment and being a Buddhist is by going through the middle way, the middle path. This is between pairs of opposites is basically what it is. Um, and each way towards this enlightenment is what's called a yana or a ferry boat. And you're trying to reach what Campbell calls the yonder shore. But he also, one of my favorite lines from the book is he says, once you reach the yonder shore, you realize that you're already there. 
And in Buddhism, what you're trying to do is release yourself from sorrow and to achieve nirvana. And um, really in Buddhism, one of the main, main precepts is that we are all Buddha beings. We just don't know it. And that's actually kind of similar to some of the Western religions, but the way that is like received is very different. So like a lot of Christian groups, they say, oh, that person could be such a good Christian, but they just, they're, they're hiding themselves from the experience of it. I don't think they would say it that eloquently, but that's basically the, the message that they're trying to get across. Whereas in Buddhism, it's like everything is Buddha Everything is one. It's a different way of going about it, but it's very different. So ultimately, the question is like, okay, if, if we're all already Buddhas, what are you supposed to do? You follow that middle path, and but what matters is your attitude about going about it. Um, at least that's what Campbell says. And this kind of leads to one of the main precepts of Eastern thought, which is that all is impermanent and all is without self. That's one of the, the main sayings. Ultimately, there's no one there. There's no one to save. And so I think the main takeaway is that you're supposed to just treat the whole world as your sanctuary. The whole world is your church. And I mean, that's it. You, you realize that the world is your sanctuary. You realize that this is it. And that's what infuses your life with meaning. And if it, it, instead of there being inherent meaning to existence you're able to infuse your own life with, with the existence. So that's today. That's uh, it for today's episode of Mythic Existence. I really think that Eastern philosophy is completely needed in the West. It will get us to think more communally and to allow us to think about our similarities rather than our differences. And ultimately, it'll allow us to embrace our own personal divinity which is the most important thing. So that's it for this episode. See you next time. Thanks for listening.